you upset or even mad, you may not have a God, you may have an idol instead. And this is what we see when we come to the Gospels as well. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus says things that inwardly, from the nature of our hearts, we disagree with, or it upsets us, or it even makes us mad, as we see it does to the Jews many times. And this is what we see especially in our passage this morning. Some, some hard sayings of Jesus, some difficult sayings of Jesus. And these are hard sayings not because they're difficult necessarily to understand. Sometimes Jesus does say things that are hard to understand. But it's not primarily that. It's that they're difficult to accept. So we know the difference between those two sorts of hard sayings. Hard sayings are hard to understand or they're simply difficult to accept. So like when your parents said to you, you cannot go hang out with your friends tonight. It's perfectly clear what they meant, right? But it's not easy to accept. How many of you parents have ever said, uh, what part of no don't you understand? If you haven't, you'll get there. Uh, And it's not that they didn't understand no. It's that it was hard to accept. And this is who we are by nature. It's hard for us to accept things that we don't like, things that we don't enjoy by nature. It's a challenge, ultimately, to our own authority. We don't like someone else telling us what we ought to do. We like to make the rules. We like to decide what we will and won't do. But Jesus, we know, calls us to submit to authority, as we saw in the scripture in Proverbs. Uh, Lean not on your own understandings. Trust, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Submit to Him. You must submit to him. Jesus says in another place, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. This is a hard saying. He must take up his cross, an instrument of death, an instrument of sacrifice. In our text this morning, we see three difficult sayings of Christ. Not necessarily difficult to understand, but difficult for the Jews and difficult ultimately for us to accept. Now this is in the broader uh, context of Jesus proclaiming that He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life who has come down from heaven to give life to the world by the giving of Himself for sinners. So let's look at this passage beginning in verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to Me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. And very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
Then the Jews began to sharply disagree among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through one of the twelve was later to betray him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we recognize things that are difficult to understand, but also things that are difficult to accept. Even if we, even if we accept them intellectually, we have a hard time submitting ourselves to your word. And so we pray, show us Christ. Show us Christ that we might see your grace, that we might see your love and mercy, and submit to your authority. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has been proclaiming, I am the bread of life which comes down from heaven. And the Jews who hear him begin to grumble. Verse 43, they're grumbling ultimately because they don't recognize the identity of Jesus. They say, isn't this uh, Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary? We know where he is from. How can he say he is from heaven? Because they did not recognize that he was from God. They didn't recognize his true identity. They were grumbling like the Israelites were in the wilderness. We've seen these parallels throughout this passage, throughout the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus later speaks about your ancestors who ate manna in the wilderness. There are all these parallels pointing back to the Israelites in the wilderness. And this one is too. These Jews have the same spirit as the Israelites did in the the wilderness. They grumbled. God rescued them from slavery and it says they grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses, the one God had appointed to lead them. They had a grumbling spirit. And so God gave them manna from the sky. Now here we see it's the reverse. God blesses them by Jesus providing this feast of bread to the 5,000. 
They get the bread first and then they grumble. They had a grumbling spirit. Same spirit as the Israelites. They did not recognize Jesus' true identity. And this is just a side point. This is just a side point really. But each one of us should consider what kind of spirit do I have? Do I have a grumbling spirit? When I think about my home life, when I think about uh, my work life, when I think about my church life, life, am I more apt to grumble than I am to give thanks? And until you, until you really begin to see and understand who Jesus Christ is for you, all that He has done for you, you're never going to have a spirit of gratitude rather than a spirit of grumbling. See, everyone is, every one of us is prone to the, spirit, the same spirit of grumbling that was in these Jews and that was in the Israelites. So Jesus uh, previously had told them, all the Father gives to me will come to me, but here He addresses their grumbling in verse 44 by one of these hard sayings. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. So first, in verse 37, he says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father gives a people to Jesus, and they come to Jesus. Here he gives the negative side of that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up. This shows us that there must be a divine initiative coming down to us if we are going to see salvation. There must be a divine initiative. What is initiative? It's taking the first step. It's doing something before something else can happen. And God, in our salvation, takes the initiative. So how many of you have ever been in a little spat with your spouse or a loved one? You always you know the deal. You, you get in this, uh, we'll call it a discussion, right? We won't call it an, an argument. And you know that you did something wrong, but you think they did something wrong too. And it's, it's always uh, can end up becoming a game. Who's going who's gonna to give in first? Who's going to take the initiative to reconcile first? Right? Who's going to take the initiative? That's what initiative is. And while we can all say that we have definitely been in the wrong, or that our, our loved one has done us wrong, in our relationship with God, we're the ones who took the step away. We're the ones who rebel. Are we going to say that God sinned against us in some way? No, we take the initiative in walking away from God and His grace is this, that He takes the initiative in coming to us. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up. We see God's divine initiative and His amazing grace. Although we were the ones who sinned against Him, he reaches down to us. And until that happens, we will not see that Jesus is the bread from heaven. Until that happens, these Jews will not see, they cannot see that Jesus is the bread from heaven. They won't believe. Now this is a difficult saying, because naturally we want to say, we want to preserve our own right to choose. We want to preserve our own ability to decide. But think about it in this way. Think about how you pray for unbelievers. How do you pray for your loved one who's not a Christian? Don't you pray, Lord, 
Please. Their, their hearts are rebellious against you. They don't love you. Please break their hearts. Draw them to yourself. God, you're going to have to take the initiative and change their heart before they're going to come to you. We pray that way. We pray, God, please do something. It's interesting to see, though, despite this, uh, this huge declaration of God's sovereignty, God's control, God's sovereignty over our salvation, Jesus also points us to human responsibility. Not only does He say, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws them, and I will raise them up on a few verses down. He says, here's the bread that has come down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. He points us to human responsibility. He doesn't see these in conflict with one another. He sees, yes, God is sovereign. Any who come to Him must come because they have been drawn by the Father and it is our responsibility to believe, to see Him, to trust in Him for who He is. This is a difficult saying, and I do think that this has something to do with His followers turning away and saying, I'm not going to follow this guy anymore. But there's even more that we'll see in the coming verses. Another, perhaps even stranger, more difficult saying of Jesus. Now we see in verses 49 through 51, Jesus says, uh, basically saying, I'm greater than Moses. You look up to Moses as the one who can save you. As his law that can save you. As God's law that can save you. But I am greater than Moses. I am greater than what the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. They ate and died. But I'm going to give you bread to make you live forever. And then he says, this bread is my flesh. Which I will give for the life of the world. Five times. Well, first, the Jews misunderstand. They, they begin arguing with their, themselves. The commentators say they're like coming to blows with each other. They're so uh, thrown off by this and confused. Now, probably they're not uh, thinking he's saying, uh, you got, have to physically eat me. They're not physically uh, thinking of that physically, but they don't know what he's saying. They don't understand. They're confused. They just don't get it. And so what does Jesus do? Does he correct them and say, no, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. You're misunderstanding me. He doesn't correct them. Rather, he intensifies the point even more. Verse 53, it's like he's speaking in parables. Sometimes in the Gospels it says Jesus spoke in parables so that they would not understand. So that seeing they might not see and so that hearing they might not hear. He intensifies it in verse 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Five times, three times Jesus says, uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He also says, you must feed on me. He says five times, basically. Eat, drink my flesh and my blood. Feed on me. Feed on this bread. And then you will have life. What does that mean? Well, in the simple sense, Jesus is, is giving us a metaphor we know that bread gives us life. We know that we have to have food to live, that we must have food, something to eat, to have physical life. And Jesus is saying, if you want spiritual life, if you want true life, you must feed on me. You must receive me by faith. But even more than that, 
the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood points to one particular act in history which we must receive. The pouring out of blood, the drinking of blood signifies a violent death. And Jesus here is pointing to the cross. What will happen as he is beaten, as he is ridiculed and mocked, and as he is hung up on a cross to die for sinners like us, this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. This is my body which was broken for you. This is my blood which was poured out for you. In the cross, Jesus gives us His flesh to eat and His blood to drink. We receive Him by faith. And as we take the Lord's Supper later this morning, this is a a reenactment of the cross of Jesus Christ. A reenactment of what Christ has done to save us. And you can uh, eat this bread and drink this cup all you want to, and it won't make a difference if, if your life if it's just physical elements. But if you receive it with faith, if you receive it with faith, looking to the cross, looking to the Christ who died for you, He will nourish you spiritually. It must be received in faith. The people hear this and they say, this is a hard saying. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Again, it's not an issue of understanding, but an issue of acceptance. Who can accept it? And Jesus says, are you offended? Are you offended that I'm speaking of my death? Are you offended that I'm speaking in these terms? Are you offended by the words that I speak? What if I am raised from the dead and ascend back to the Father? Then what will you say? My words are full of spirit and life, but you don't believe. And notice he returns back to the previous hard saying. You don't believe. And then verse 65, this is why I said no one can come to me unless the Father enables them. This is why you're finding it so difficult to accept. Notice verse 66, what happens. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Well, of course, Jesus, what did you think was going to happen? You're saying all these strange things. Nobody can come to me unless the Father first draws him, unless he takes the initiative. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. What are you trying to do, Jesus? You know, we talk about uh, church growth within the American church. Like it is the Holy Grail. Like it's what we're after. Like numbers are what we're after. And we do want to see people saved. We want to preach the gospel. We want to tell our friends and our neighbors, Jesus saves. You're dead in your sins. Come to Jesus and have life. But notice, it wasn't the quantity of followers that Jesus wanted. It was the quality. Right? We want, there's something about the inward quality Jesus wanted in his followers. Just like if someone were to say to you, do you want a million dollars? And they brought you a, a million counterfeit bills. Right? Do you want that? It's not going to work. That's not going to do anything. It's not the quantity. It's the quality of the bills. And Jesus here is saying, it doesn't matter how many followers I gain if they're not really followers. If they're not really trusting in me. If they're not really feeding on me and receiving me by faith. So he turns to his disciples. Do you want to leave me too? His disciples were there and 
Maybe you could physically see, you could visibly see people beginning to scatter. Oh no, it's falling apart. This movement, everything was going fine, Jesus, and then you started saying these things. Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And this is the other difficult saying that we see in our passage. Because Jesus says it to us as well. As you see believers compromising the faith, falling into sin, turning away from faith in Him, do you want to leave me too? In the face of ridicule and mockery, are you going to leave me too? Peter's response is a great example to us. Where else can we go? We sang it already. Where else can we go, Lord? We have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that You are the Holy One. Where else can we go? This is a a wonderful example for us. And yet Jesus, perhaps He notices some sense of pride in Peter even. Because look at what He says following Peter's great proclamation. Verse 70, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? He doesn't want Peter to have pride within himself about the boldness of his proclamation, the boldness of his profession of faith in Jesus. He points Peter back to himself, didn't I choose you? And yet one of you is the devil. He's pointing here to Judas. He wants to give a contrast between Peter's profession of faith and what they believe and Judas' betrayal. We love Peter for this. We love Peter for his boldness. Right? This, we see this one. Where else can we go, Lord? Peter, you're awesome. Then he says in another place, You are the Christ. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, when Jesus is about to go to his death, he's telling the disciples about his death, and Peter says, Even if everybody leaves you, I'm going to stay with you. I will stay all the way to the point of death. We love Peter because of his boldness. He's contrasted here with Judas. But even in the end, Peter, what does he do? Abandons the Lord. He has this bold proclamation, this bold profession of faith. Before the rooster crows, Jesus says, you will deny me three times. What happened to all his boldness? What happened to his faith? It's hard to think of a more forceful rejection of Jesus than what Peter does. It's hard to think of a a worse instance of rejection of Christ than what Peter does. But Jesus does not abandon him. Do you remember Jesus meets him on the shore? And he says three times, do you love me, Peter? And he restores Peter by his grace. Ultimately, it's not the boldness of our profession that secures our salvation. It's not the boldness of our proclamation of our love for God that makes us acceptable to God. It's the bread of life which is broken for you. It's the blood of our Savior Jesus which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And He does it for you. 
He does it for Peter who rejected Him. He does it for the thief on the cross who at first ridiculed and mocked Him but then came to faith in Him though He had done very little good in the previous parts of His life. And if you come to Him in faith and receive Him in faith, He does it for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would show us Christ. We have seen Him in Your Word. But just because we have seen Him in Your Word doesn't mean we have seen Him spiritually. doesn't mean we have fed on Him spiritually by faith. So draw our hearts to faith in You. That we would receive nourishment from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord in song before we take the Lord's Supper.